Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I am proud to announce that Food Pharmacy, one of the biggest health brands in Sweden, is now launching its highly acclaimed blog as well as books and podcasts in English. Food Pharmacy is eager to take its award-winning Scandinavian concept and share it with the rest of the world and to contribute to the fight against the global burden of lifestyle-related diseases. In 2014, Lina Nertby and Mia Klasse started Food Pharmacy, embarking on a long, sometimes meandering, often magical journey towards their goal of improving public health. Along the way, they've spoken with a variety of experts and professionals in various fields related to health and lifestyle. In this podcast series, you'll meet a few of them. Be a part of the journey. This is The Food Pharmacy Show. Welcome to the Food Pharmacy Show, Mia. Thank you, Lina. And most important of all, welcome to all of your listeners. Today, we will raise a subject that we have talked about many times in our Swedish podcast, and that is longevity. On the journey to optimize our health, it has not been the number of years we get rather the quality of years we live. According to statistic, the chronical diseases also called lifestyle-related diseases, are increasing. And you could say in a way that we are accelerating our own aging process. Yes, since many people live a large part of their lives being sick. But it doesn't have to be that way. With a good lifestyle, we can actually slow down our aging process instead. And that is what today's interview is about. Today's interview is with someone we actually know and someone who has helped us optimizing our health. Yes, he has. And we are so thankful for that. And he is very passionate about trying to empower patients to be able to live a long and healthy life. Today, we will finally meet with Graham Jones, a clinical physiologist with over 15 years of experience within preventative and functional medicine. Today, Graham works as CEO and clinical director at Nordic Clinic Stockholm, a multidisciplinary clinic researching how a personalized medicine approach can prevent, treat and attempt to reverse chronic diseases. Graham Jones is actively involved in a wide variety of patient cases, from ME to IBS, and uses advanced clinical testing from genetics to metabolomics to help drive effective treatment strategies. He's currently collaborating with Sweden's prestigious Karolinska Institute on research related to chronic IBS treatment. Welcome, Graham Jones. Graham Jones. It's an honor to have you here. And uh, today I have a few questions about longevity. Yeah, absolutely. Excited to be here. Yeah, and I know that is uh, one of your biggest interests, actually. Yeah, it's definitely become a really big interest of mine. Mm. Just because I think it's really starting to make sense to promote you know, a long and fruitful life that's free of disease. Mm. I think it's much better to prevent a problem than to try and cure it. Yeah. So let's take it from the beginning. What is longevity and what does it have to do with disease? <laughs> well, longevity, I guess, is a word that's developed and it's kind of like life expectancy. So how 
how long can you live? And of course, some people like centenarians, for example, they do longevity very well. Yeah, mm. Obviously, they can live to 100 years and, and more super centenarians. So longevity is basically a word that has come in to describe that aging process, life expectancy, and also we now have or have been having for many years the, the science of longevity mm. where researchers are really assessing what can we do to age more successfully, what can slow it down and potentially what can reverse it. Mm. So you talk about health span and lifespan, but what's the difference? Lifespan is simply the amount of years that you live. So if you live until 75 and die age 75, your lifespan was 75 years. But health span is the amount of those years without disease. Mm. So we can see, for example, in Sweden that the average lifespan uh, in 2016 was 82.3 years. Uh, but if you like, the health span for that was 72.4 years. So that means we, on average, live 10 years where we are not healthy. With a, a morbidity, exactly. Mm. And I suspect that if the data is looked at in more detail, I mean, it would be interesting to look at how many years are people living with some kind of disability or poor quality of life due to you know, feeling unwell or not having a, a diagnosis or knowing what they have. But mm. we, we see, of course, at Nordic Clinic, many patients that, that come that have no diagnosis but feel unwell and something is really affecting their quality of life. Mm. Um, and I know for a fact Sweden is quite healthy in Scandinavia. And uh, if we look in towards other countries, then it's a bit of a different story where people can be living with many more years of morbidity and it of course really impacts quality of life and it places huge burden on the healthcare system mm. uh, so in in sweden for example um things like diabetes which i know that you and i have a uh, you know, very common passion for trying to reduce that and it costs 15.3 billion sec uh, to our economy mm. just that one disease and it's yeah. totally preventable yeah. with some simple lifestyle choices. Isn't that crazy? I mean, we could have used those 15 billion for so many other things. Uh, well, uh, exactly. Um, whatever you would want to put that in, mm. you know, culture, art, education, um, science, mm. research. And then it, we expect in um, 2030 that that will increase to 21 billion mm. and this is the uh, you know the predictions for for Sweden so it's a bit of a sad situation with this disease mm. that that is totally preventable and reversible if you know, certainly we, we catch it early it gives us a, a much better chance at reversing it. Mm. And I mean talking about uh, UK where are you from the figures yeah. are even worse. <laughs> well it's I I think it's amazing I'm still alive really yeah. <laughs> based on what what um you know I was fed as a child and what the schools feed the children and I think a lot of I guess why my health has been so good was just I was so active um but the UK yeah is completely different to Sweden I mean if we just take patients that I have in the UK compared to Sweden it's a whole of level of you know different basic conversation to those patients in England about what just constitutes healthy food mm. and what you know, what they should be eating. Um, so it's a completely different ball game. Mm. Although uh, I think in the UK, for example, some of the healthcare is perhaps at a, a higher level in regards to preventative medicine. Mm. So they do that science much more effectively in the UK compared to Sweden. Oh, they do. Yes. Mm. 
I that's good. <laughs> yeah, I worked for a a hospital group called Nuffield Hospitals, and um, I don't know how many hospitals they had now, but it was approximately between forty and fifty in the country at that wow. time. Mm-hmm. It's a private hospital group, but they changed their whole medical screening model to a preventative model. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was, yeah, whatever that was now, maybe uh, yeah, 10, 15 years ago. Mm. So certainly in, in the UK, they have dedicated hospital units taking you know, thousands and thousands of patients a year doing preventative screening with the goal of reducing the risk of a disease developing mm. and have you know, doctor and physiologist teams you know, measuring data and information and educating patients about lifestyle and what they can do to reduce their risk of developing disease. So talking about those uh, 15 billion, this is yeah. where we could invest them uh, <laughs> to to be even healthier. Exactly. Well, you and I would probably spend that money a lot differently and try and start to funnel that more into prevention and early detection because of course we know the health system i mean let's not be too hard on it it's fantastic if we have a heart attack or a major problem Mm. certainly the swedish health system is one of the best systems in the world to be Mm. able to deal with that but in regards to preventative measures certainly we could we could use if we we took some of that money spent on diabetes and put that into earlier testing and education of course i mean i think that would be a great idea and it would be much better for society and the the load on the system in general Mm, especially considering that the majority of all diseases today are lifestyle related and could be prevented in many cases i i completely agree Mm. i mean top one obviously cardiovascular disease So when we're looking at longevity, one thing we often do at Nordic Clinic is just run a uh, a simple panel of of tests which assess for cardiovascular risk or disease. And um, I mean, that that costs society a huge amount because mm. um, you have obviously obesity and diabetes also hugely contributing to that. Mm. So I think any way in which those diseases can be screened for early and prevented and we know that lifestyle makes a huge impact mm. how you eat sleep exercise how you um basically cope with things like stress mm. or play a role in cardiovascular disease i mean that's undeniable mm. um, of course there are genetic components there are people that will have high cholesterol that comes from yeah genetic origin mm. and those are cases where we have to combine the lifestyle advice with the medications we have to, to help reduce risk mm. so i don't think this is a total lifestyle intervention but i think that's a massive part of it and i think for the ones where lifestyle can't help directly or we we want to control a piece of biology that that's where we use the medication yeah. and it becomes really an effective cooperation mm. and that's how my education has always been from the UK in medicine is looking at well what's the best tool for the job here and yeah. certainly lifestyle is the tools we want to use as much as we can we want to start early and then when lifestyle is is not helping or we need to is to to use maybe supplementation on top and then also of course we have medication mm. but um i think it's quite sad when it comes to the fact that people the first brush they you know have with with problems is oh now you have diabetes and we do see a lot of results that come across our desk at the clinic where we can see trends we can see the patterns in the data that mm. unfortunately haven't been picked up and commented on early yeah and i mean i understand it doctors are overwhelmed they have very little time in the normal system and they have to prioritize yeah. patients that need the urgent care mm. but again i think it's 
simple education for the the doctors that we have to say that you need to look at trends and these diseases cost a huge amount and if you can pick that up early we can really prevent a lot of deaths and a lot of expense for society mm, and also improve life quality while we're alive well i mean that's of course a, a massive factor as well mm. but many people whether whether walking around with a disease like diabetes or some kind of heart disease um or whether it's a syndrome like chronic fatigue syndrome or me i mean quality of life is severely impacted mm. um and i think people can't appreciate that unless you've you know developed a disease yourself or developed some kind of syndrome mm. um but it yeah we see it a lot of course we hear it all the time from our patients at the clinic that their quality of life is severely impacted and of course classically in society we go around how are you doing oh, yeah. yeah i'm f- i'm fine i'm yeah. fine there's no where i mean the reality is that a lot of people aren't okay mm. even though they manage their disease it still really creates a lot of problems that people don't think about mm. you talked about centenarians what can they teach us about chronic illness health span and lifespan <laughs> Yeah, great, good question. Um, centenarians have certain factors that we see in, uh, throughout their society, which seem to help to have, if you if you like, good longevity. Um, they tend to have a strong community. They tend not to smoke. They're very active. They avoid a Western diet. Mm. You know, they drink in moderation and spend a lot of time outdoors along with often doing some form of calorie restricting or or fasting they are not uh doing excessive eating <laughs> no, no no they're generally not no um so they can and and have done they've taught us a lot and there's various researchers that have extensively evaluated these cultures and we see a lot of things in common there that I've just discussed in those points that really at Nordic clinic as well, we're we're trying to promote this kind of thinking to, to our, our patients to help to promote and, you know, extend their lifespan and health span. Mm. If they can start to apply some of these and of course it's a process and it's not easy we know behavioral change is very difficult and it takes time and effort and consistency i mean awareness is one thing to yeah. be aware that i should exercise or i should eat better or more greens or whatever it could be but to act, to take the actual steps yeah that's the hard part oh oh yes i i mean i know that myself mm. um it's me too <laughs> it is very it is difficult and life does happen And there are going to be ebbs and flows and sometimes you're not going to be perfect with food or exercise. But I guess it's trying to have a focus in multiple of these areas. And okay, if exercise is not going so well, try and have a healthy diet as as much as you can and um, try and use all these tools and implement them into daily routines. And that seems to be the key, like brushing your teeth or getting dressed mm. in the morning mm. you uh you know once you get into that routine um it, it becomes a part of your everyday life and it's much easier to continue with mm. i mean i think we couldn't stress that enough it's not about being perfect it's no. about doing as good as you can in many different lifestyle areas to like find a balance yeah it's something we talk to all our patients at the clinic about that we're not expecting you to be perfect and we're we're not ourselves everyone who works at the clinic yeah. I mean, no one no we one is humans. perfect we're yeah we're human and you have to allow yourself some some leeway to enjoy life mm. i mean uh, so we talk about the 80 20 rule or the 90 10 rule where look 90 percent of the time do the best job you can and 10 percent 
you know, in, enjoy some of the things that life has to offer that may not necessarily be healthy for us in some ways, but can in others. I was thinking you you said brush your teeth and that's the thing that keeps on coming to my mind (laughs) because uh, this is an area where we actually have succeeded with preventive care. I think there are a few people who don't brush their teeth every morning and every night. You don't wait until you get to the dentist to fix your teeth. It's something you try to uh, prevent it from happening. And that's a good example of uh, when you have created a habit, you yeah. don't want to be without it. <laughs> no, and I mean, if uh, on the very rare occasions where you, you know, leave the house or the apartment and you realize you haven't brushed your teeth, I mean, you have to go back. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> because, this is, yeah. is, is this the key to longevity, to yeah. find different routines that don't take a long time, but that when you've done it, yeah. Much enough. You don't want to be without it. I think that's exactly the key. Mm. I'm certainly not perfect at implementing all of these areas, but I know for a fact, I mean, I enjoy running and will often run multiple times a week. But at mm. one point I, I never enjoyed running. I thought that was hell. Mm. Why would I want to just run in a straight line. Mm. Is uh, it now you inspire me to start yeah. running? Because I sound like you did. <laughs> yeah. And um, I mean, I much more enjoyed sports, like hitting a tennis ball or playing football. Mm. But I started to run and thought, I'll, I'll give this a go because um, of the lifestyle I have. It was proving difficult to fit in some of these sports where you've got to travel. Yeah. Um, or and, you're dependent on other people to yeah. play football, for example. You need at least 20 more yeah, or something. Yeah, exactly. So I just started running uh, with two days a week and then built it up and got to you know, five, six days a week. Mm. Um, and then went the opposite way and started to get injuries from <laughs> overtraining. Mm. So then had to bring it back a little and focus more on also recovery from those sessions Mm. and I think that's also the key with stress management it's not doing one or two hours a week on one day it's about what can you fit in and do every day Mm. and that's what makes the difference if you can do 10 minutes a day it seems that that's much better than doing two hours on one day a week Mm. So I think that's really is a, you know, like you say, it's, it's finding these little gaps in the day or creating them and creating that habit. And then you'll be in that habit, Mm. whether that's cold showers that we were talking about before the the podcast recording, um, or whether it's running or whether it's something like meditation or a walk in nature, whatever that may be. Mm. that helps that person it is doing something to just create those regular habits Mm. and then you miss them when you don't do them yeah you do um i never thought i would miss my cold showers (laughs) but now when i haven't done it in the morning if i was in a rush i realized that oh i i missed that yeah that's a wonderful feeling and um i mean there's things like walter longo who's Mm. one of the leading researchers in longevity. I mean, he's developing or has developed a fasting mimicking diet called Prolon, Mm. which we often use at the clinic. And I think that also can be key because things like calorie restriction is not enjoyable for Mm. most of us who've grown up in the West in a culture where eating a lot of food and eating high calorie food is associated with enjoyment and pleasure and Mm. stress management of course often as children we get fed food when we get hurt or and that's a separate topic but i think there's a lot of new strategies things where okay we can use a fasting mimicking diet that doesn't require a full water only fast which is 
very difficult to do for most people. Mm. Certainly can't sustain it more than a few days. Um, some people can't go a few hours without eating. Mm. Um, yeah, for some people, maybe one hour yeah. of not eating is a good start yeah. in the beginning. And I think these are exciting ways in which we can actually reduce our rate of aging mm. because this is what Longo is showing in his research with like a fasting mimicking diet that um, we can you know, halt the aging process Mm. through manipulation of of calorie content and i think that's quite exciting because people are more likely to be able to do something like that mm. maybe it's once a quarter and there's a lot of questions around fasting about well what's the dose so we know that certain fasts and the way people do them can change the biology but of course the big question is well how often should you do that should mm. that be once a month? Should it be once every eight weeks or once a quarter or two times a year? And that re research is ongoing. Mm. So, so what do you think? For fasting, mm. um, I generally like what we call time-restricted feeding. Mm. So That's I what I practice. Yeah. Um, so I believe that having somewhere between an eight and 12 hour window of eating over the day. So if you're doing a 12 hour eating window, that would mean if you eat breakfast at eight o'clock in the morning, you would stop eating by eight o'clock at night. Mm. And I think that's the maximum that you should be eating or having food in your, in your body. Um, of course, 168 is a more famous version of that. So 16 hours fasting and eight hours eating. I think that's a general good approach, mm. um, but people are different and some people do very well off 14.10, for example. Mm. Some people do very well off 12.12 and this is the individual nature of it that we're often looking at what's right for each person mm. and that might be different from time to time depending on what's going on. Yeah, But... I believe that all my like clinical evidence would say that it's probably good at least four times a year to do something like the fasting mimicking diet or some form of fasting. And that's probably easier than doing constant calorie restriction. Yeah. Because definitely. yeah, most people really struggle with that. And that's been one of the things in the research that really has been shown to if you like, slow the rate of aging is mm. calorie restriction. Mm. But of course, people feel hungry. They can feel a bit tired. They can feel cold. Mm. And um, of course, that's usually not good when you're trying to function in the Western world. Talking about life quality, <laughs> you don't want to <laughs> yeah. get a poor life quality also at the same time. But I guess when I've done lifestyle changes, uh, you have to give it a certain amount of time until you adjust. And then you can evaluate. Do I want to continue with this or not? But after one or two days, I guess it's too early to say. Yeah, we have different methods to see if things are working. Of course, the easiest is basically, okay, how do you feel? Is it working and helping? And that can take time. Mm. if you're changing the way you're eating it may take many weeks or even two months for example to really mm. feel benefit possibly even longer mm. we use a device called the aura ring mm. from a finnish tech based company and we're often tracking data there with our patients to see well when we manipulate a variable What's the difference in heart rate, heart rate variability, which is a, a measure of recovery and resilience, uh, along with other things like deep sleep. So often people might not, so, not necessarily feel a huge difference from a change, but we can see changes in the data early. And that, I think, is what I like about um, functional medicine or precision medicine and how it uses data to really feed back to people what you are doing is mm. working and people mm. can see that 
and then it makes it easier to stick to mm-hmm. rather than just thinking, ah, this is not helping and it's too hard. So I think data is an important factor and although wearable technology is not perfect, but it's developing all the time. And, you know, f- from when we put the continuous glucose monitors mm. on, I, uh, on yourself and yeah. Mia, mm-hmm. um, just how interesting that was to look at different foods and effects on your blood sugar. Yes, I could really uh, recommend to try different things because I wear the aura ring you're talking about and I can see exactly what you're talking about. It's one thing what you feel, but it's one thing what your data is telling you because you can see uh, immediate uh, output in the data that you might not be able to feel yourself, but then you know that you're on the right way. And also like the glucose monitor that I was wearing showed me that, oh, I thought I had something healthy. Yeah. But my blood sugar rose so fast. Yeah. <laughs> so um, to that, we must thank technology yeah. because it helps us a lot. It can help us. It does. I mean, and it's, again, not necessarily the right thing for every person. Um, some people don't like wearing technology and some people, the data can be very scary mm. and they don't want to have some kind of continuous mon- monitoring. I, I totally get that. It's just... You know, I'm a bit of a, obviously a little bit of a, a tech a nerd. nerd and I yeah. like data, um, but I totally recognize it's not right for every patient that comes to the clinic. So we don't yeah, ask every patient to do it. We have a discussion, but I think it is an important factor to see how these changes, you can see data improve and that is quite rewarding And it's nice to see, and you know, know, both we and the person who's doing that change then say, okay, now I I get it. I've moved my eating times and I can see I'm getting a whole extra 20 minutes of deep sleep. Mm. Or I'm moving much more in the day and I can see my step counts are higher Mm. and I can see my heart rate variability, which as I mentioned before, is this marker of resilience and recovery and overall we want a higher score it gets better Mm. and that will get better with things like can often improve through cold showers and just taking more breaks in the day Mm. um so we we are using data like that to help to build what i would call resilience Mm. so then when a bad time comes for you health or emotional or physical health wise it's more likely that your body's going to have a better time or easier time to yeah exactly Mm. uh, to to cope with that Mm. so longevity or anti-aging seems like something out of a science fiction movie to some people I think but this is really possible yes um, been well well shown in yeast mice and animals or primates such as monkeys um, and it's the, the studies are now coming in us humans so we thought it was possible to slow the rate of aging mm. and that was shown and um, even now some of the studies are showing that we can actually turn back this clock mm. uh, so you can actually reverse aging yes it's we can't like say by exactly how much, but there's preliminary data that's showing that that's, that's possible. Uh, and of course, technology is developed on how we measure aging as well. And that's been a problem in the past because it's not always been easy to measure how, how, we, how we actually age and what our age is. So how can you measure the rate of biological aging? There's some really fascinating new methods of doing that. And um, one way is called the uh, Horvath clock. It's developed by a scientist and it looks at, if you like, these marks on the DNA. Mm. Um, or it's called methylation. And by measuring those marks on the DNA, 
like counting, you know, the rings on a tree stump. Mm. It can tell us what our biological age actually is. And that can be very much or yeah, be very different to our actual like age in mm. in in regards to what number are you? So you might be eighty years old but have a biological age of a seventy year old. Mm. So that's that's one method that I think is very exciting and um this Horvath clock seems to be that the most promising way, but there's been other methods like uh, telomere length and of course metabolism studies where we're looking at okay what is the body actually metabolizing and the rate of that metabolism and then we can look at markers like uh, cardiovascular disease risk markers for example and of course if you have markers above the normal range there we can say well that's more likely that your biological age is increased mm. um, because, of course, these are markers that are associated with a higher age. Mm. So that's, I mean, really important to recognize that the biggest risk factor for all disease is age, mm. more so than than smoking. Yeah, but it doesn't have to be actual years then. It could no, only be the biological age. Yeah. So this, I think, where the the research and where we're really well well why I've become so interested in this clinically is just to if we can reduce the rate of which people biologically age mm. then we're pushing disease mm. um backward as I would say in, in English. Um so it's it's gonna be a longer time since that can develop. So hopefully you know health span and lifespan are a much closer number Mm. Um, and I think well, that's also shown, well, I know it's also shown in centenarians that actually when they develop a chronic disease, they don't survive any longer than, than anyone, a, else. anyone else. So mm. it seems to be like their, their kryptonite as well. Mm. But the difference with centenarians is they do have just some genetics, which mean that they tend to avoid chronic disease for an extra 20 years than you or I, for example. Mm. Maybe we are centenarians, well, maybe, we don't maybe. know. <laughs> I think you can have to, if you look at your family history. Yeah, I, then I'm not the centenarian, unfortunately. <laughs> neither, neither am I, although it's hard but to say with someone mine. Someone needs to change the trend. <laughs> yeah. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. <laughs> talking about your family history to me that was even a bigger door opener to why I should optimize my health because I have a lot of uh, chronic diseases yeah. in my family history so I just felt when I got this information I want to do what I can to uh, prevent something to happen too early so talking about aging 
what are the main risk factors for an accelerated rate of aging? One thing that's often not necessarily talked about, especially by um, by Swedes and Swedish population, um, but I'd say is more prevalent in places like the UK and the US is social inequality. Mm. So, do what, they talk more about that in US and UK? Yeah, I think it's it, they they definitely do, um, or at least it's I would maybe not necessarily talk about it but it's more well known as a bigger problem because of course in sweden generally society as a whole you don't have this huge difference between for example you know the the, the poor working class and the upper class as you have in the uk mm. and yeah one thing if you want to avoid disease one thing to do is not be born poor mm. and of course you are not in control of that. But yeah, that's a, quite depressing yeah. since you you cannot control it. Exactly. But unfortunately being, you know, born poor and being under as we call it the poverty line which is still scarily very prevalent in places like the UK uh, is a, a big risk factor for chronic disease and and poor health. Mm. So that's something that certainly in Scandinavia and Sweden, that is not as bad as places like the US or the UK. But yeah, one thing for health risk or disease risk, we certainly know that's right at the top, is mm. being born poor is a big problem. So what are the components in being poor then? I think it's multifactorial that um, you know, being born poor, you're less likely to have good education, more likely that your parents or whoever's looking after you uh, has undergone some kind of trauma, living in poor circumstances, don't have the money to buy healthy food, maybe don't have the, the drive and motivation to do that. Usually you'll have less access to nature and you know, physical activity type scenarios which mm. just come more with people who have you know, a better social equality mm. more likely to probably rely on things like smoking to mm. you know as a coping mechanism mm. i'm i'm certainly not an expert in this area um so it'd be interesting to ask you know, mm. more of these questions yeah. to um for example, the Annie at the clinic who often does pieces of research for us to uh, to look more at these markers or and epidemiologists who study more of this data. Mm. So apart from being poor, yeah, um, do we have any other main risk factors? Of course, smoking, mm. smoking, obesity, diabetes. Mm. If you really want to get a chronic disease, so cardiovascular disease, uh, diabetes, um, cancer and dementia, then mm. really you want to avoid smoking, avoid being obese and you certainly don't want to be diabetic. Mm. You actually wrote, um, you wrote a very interesting chronicle on our blog, foodpharmacycu.com about... Um, a very important part of biological aging is to monitor your insulin levels. Yes. Mm. Maybe we get to that in, in my next questions. But um... Yeah, so, I mean, sedentary lifestyle, poor sleep, Western mm. diet. I mean, these are the, the factors that um, really are, the, you know, they're a big risk for some kind of chronic disease development. When you say Western diet... Yeah. What do you mean? High in calories, mm. generally high in fat, high in sugar, simple carbohydrates, mm. usually lacking in, in fiber. Mm. So, you know, often in people can be eating you know, sugary cereals for breakfast. It might just be you know, pasta for lunch and you know, some kind of takeaway for dinner and 
usually drinking sodas and snacking on you know, potato crisps, as we would call in, mm. uh, in, in, in British English. Mm. Um, that is a Western diet. <laughs> yeah, for, for sure. Um, so it's if you look at, I mean, obviously the classic Western diet is really looking at um, you know, the standard American diet and how American culture has really started to influence the rest of the world. Mm. Um, it's so addictive that food so yeah. you can easily see how when people start to try it you want more and more because you yeah. get hungrier even yeah. though you ate so much for lunch yeah yeah you will be hungry uh, in one or two hours again yeah and i think if we look at certainly post world war Two, mm. where countries like britain was starving and the nhs and governments were really trying to you know, promote population growth. Mm. I mean, you can understand why this diet was promoted. Mm. Uh, it, was, it was designed to be you know, cheap and just enable the population to survive and grow in the short term. Mm. But of course, you know, those, those things have developed over time and um, you know, resulted in the now it's gone more from just helping the population to survive, survive. to mm. to actually food manufacturers, which of course manipulate the contents to be addictive and promote you to eat more. Mm. Um, That's sad. Yeah, which of course it it is, and I think the the US really leading that leading that way with some of their you know the the amount of calories and sugar that you can just find in some of their foods like these you know big gulp drinks that come with a, a fast food takeaway i mean it's very very scary it's scary considering that i read only one out of eight americans is metabolic healthy yeah that's um that that's scary <laughs> figures it is scary and uh, especially with the situation of obviously corona co yeah. corona covid-19 and we know that the risk groups are well one is age mm. 70 years or older and um also we know that having some kind of comorbidity so uh, diabetes high blood pressure mm. is not good at all for mm. outcomes with corona so i've been very surprised that governments aren't actually you know stepping up their preventative measures and saying you know, people need to be more active and think more about their health because it has very real implications and this has been well known for a long time that if you have a comorbidity if you have an existing disease any kind of threat to your health you you've got a greater risk mm. of of dying Mm. Yeah, I've also been thinking a lot about that. It's uh, sad uh, that media haven't, or from a political point of view, they haven't uh, raised this issue, very important issue, more since there has been a big worry among people about catching COVID-19 and get severe ill. Yeah. So talking about reduce their rate of biological aging, what can people do? Well, the... The opposite. opposite. Um, <laughs> yeah, try and, um, yeah, re really, I think if we're reverse engineering it, most people, you know, to be very morbid, will die of cardiovascular disease. Mm. So we've got to look at the things that contribute to that. Mm. Um, so, of course, it's not having a Western diet. It's trying to exercise as much as you can or be active try and sleep as well as you can and make sure you yeah have good quality sleep and the good thing is sorry for interrupting that but these two comes together because that is something you see if you are uh, measuring your data that uh, when you have moved regularly or even exercised in a day you are more likely to get a good night's sleep Yes, we see that regularly. Mm. So, I mean, it's good to inform people that all these things are connected. It's not that yeah. they are isolated things, but you will, by exercising naturally, get a better sleep. Yeah. 
and you will uh, naturally by not having uh, bad food late in the night also have yeah. a better sleep and yeah be more motivated to exercise and stuff like that that's been one of the, the biggest like points of feedback that we've had from patients where we've used the aura ring for example and mm. we've been teaching this a long time at the clinic that if you have a meal close to going to bed and the higher calorie uh, level or content of that meal it will push your heart rate much higher throughout the early part of the night mm. and that's going to affect your sleep recovery mm. some of the best sleep data we see are in the early stages of a calorie restricted diet so mm. when we do the fasting mimicking diet often my deep sleep and other people's deep sleep that we measure will improve by an hour in mm. some cases that's a lot and that's really interesting that mm. it falls into this category or saying of what what doesn't kill us makes us stronger mm. and that's where we see like exercise calorie restriction even cold water exposure mm. they activate if you like repair and repair mechanisms or healing mechanisms things that were initially designed for us to survive the tough environment that we lived in as hunter-gatherers and um, those are actually things which promote longevity mm. we talked about insulin and monitor yeah. your insulin and um, you say that uh, that is a very vital part of uh, not accelerate aging yeah it is do you we have any simple answer on this <laughs> <laughs> i mean a very simple answer would be that the more insulin production you have you'll develop insulin resistance or you can develop in what's called insulin resistance over time which means that diabetes is going to happen mm. and um and that we know then causes problems with blood sugar management inflammation and heart disease mm. so insulin is an essential like component of the body for us to be able to function and work but the more we're exposed to it, it creates a bigger risk for our health. Mm. So it's good to make sure that your insulin levels are kept in a low range and yeah, kept there for as long as possible over your 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 life span. Mm. And for uh, people who sit and listen and think, so how do I make sure of that? I mean, it's very easy. There are lists today where you can actually see the glycemic index yeah. of different food. And I, I find it very interesting. I didn't know anything about this uh, six, eight years ago. But now when I know, I, I always make sure not to have food that have a too high glycemic index. Yeah. It's a good way to monitor your insulin levels. It, definitely, that's a very simple way. It's mm. just, I mean, glycemic index was the original version. And then we, or I say we, but I mean like the royal we is in research. Um, but the glycemic load was yeah. then developed and that's uh, a bit of a better model. Mm. And then I guess where that's gone to a high level is with continuous glucose monitoring or you can have these tests with the hospital looking at your glucose tolerance. Mm. It's called a glucose tolerance test and you drink glucose and then they look at how your blood sugar responds. Um, but we, of course, use these glucose monitoring devices. So a continuous glucose monitor like that we had you and me aware. And mm. um, of course, we can see response to foods from that and um, mm. we do see individualized responses some people can react more severely to certain foods than others and of course it depends on your exercise and your sex and your age and other factors yeah there it, again everything is interlinked yeah um i mean if you're if, doing a lot of exercise mm. then getting away with some higher glycemic load foods and certainly if you're an athlete or mm. you know a sport performer where you're engaged in some kind of 
know, semi-professional or competitive activity, then you're going to you need, need yeah. yeah higher higher calorie intake and certainly higher carbohydrate intake. Um, but we even still have to monitor those professional athletes, and we do because they can also come into problems if they're not getting it right for their own body. Mm. So I wouldn't say that just doing all the exercise you want and eating a high calorie, high glycemic no, low diet, is, again, it's not a good thing to do. Mm, I think that's often a misunderstanding. I often hear or I often heard people say, but I could have... I can eat this because uh, I will do my exercise. But it's not right. only about that. Uh, it's also about to give your body the nutrient it needs to uh, to yeah. keep you strong and fit. Yeah, and especially with diseases like cancer, which is you know, this kind of uncontrolled growth. Mm. And this is why things like fasting may certainly have protective mechanisms against cancer mm. because when you're constantly eating high calorie intake you're promoting a body that's constantly growing mm. in the biology and that's not good from a cancer perspective so it's one strategy like calorie restriction or having fasting periods to in a way, a way we can turn off those growth mechanisms and actually help to reduce risk of you know a terrible disease mm. like cancer now that's not to say again I need to qualify this and say that okay that's going to deal with all cancer types and you're going to be totally protected of course it's more complicated that there's genetics involved and certain cancers when we get into the research, really seem to respond to fasting and some actually it potentially Don't. makes them worse. Mm. So it's, of course, a complicated picture. But in regards to a preventative measure, if your goal is to live as long a healthy life as possible, I think certainly you should be thinking about some form of, you know, well, monitoring calories on a, on a regular basis, mm. thinking about okay can i is it is it realistic and it's always good to check uh, with your with your doctor if you you can do some fasting and that's possible for you but i think these are our strategies that that can be done um usually quite easily and um you know have the potential to really reduce risk of some terrible diseases developing Talking about different ages, I mean, is it too late to reverse aging once someone gets a certain age, 50, for example? No, there's been some preliminary studies done on yeah participants over the age of 50, and mm. we can see actually a, a reduced uh, a reversal of the biological aging clock. Nice with certain treatments and strategies so by all accounts that's not the case and i think people often get that thought in their mind that i'm too old mm. or no it's uh, it's, it's not too gonna, late it's too late it's not going to make any difference and of course sometimes we're our own worst enemy mm. but no you it, it is possible whatever age you are you can still make a big a big difference even over the short term some some short-term changes just moving more in the day we know that will make mm. a big difference so th again this is not rocket science mm. stuff it's things that are you know, cheap and easy and often mm. free to do it just takes willpower that is interesting i think that uh, because uh, that was something i had an imagination before i started with this that it must be expensive to optimize your health but actually most of the best things are for free yeah uh, uh, well exactly mm. they they are i mean of course there's 
some interesting areas developing whereby maybe certain molecules like resveratrol, for example, mm. um, potentially can, well, it activates these certain genes called sirtuins that are responsible, if you like, for this um, DNA protection or DNA repair that occurs that can extend our lifespan. So there are elements there which may cost some money, but are certainly no way to the level that exercise and calorie restriction, for example, are researched and known to have you know, these effects of aging reversal. Mm. So, of course, at the clinic, we're always telling people that lifestyle is where you should spend your focus. Mm. And um, these yeah, daily routines are so important and it's going to be worth a lot more. You, you can't out-supplement if you don't exercise or sleep poorly or have a Western diet. Mm. It's not going to do any good at all. Um, so again, it's really lifestyle is the basis and then we can look at things like maybe supplementation or medication on top. Mm. So I have one final question for you, Graham, and that is why is functional medicine a better model to slow biological aging than the normal medical system? The obvious answer to that is that the medical or the standard medical system through all its positives only deals with people when a disease develops mm. and that's already often too late so people will have a heart attack or people will have a stroke mm. or they have developed dementia mm. or they're getting diagnosed with some advanced staged cancer Mm. and I think this is why I got into functional medicine was that it didn't make sense to me that why wait until something's broken mm. to then try and fix it which we know once you have heart disease once you have cancer that you're in a serious situation and the reality is that it could very well be fatal mm. and it's hard to reverse those although of course it happens mm. and that doesn't mean that if you have those diseases you shouldn't try and do anything about it quite the contrary but for me functional medicine um it's not a separate system to normal medicine we use them in combination we still need doctors to assess people medically and wear their medical hats use that you know use their skills diagnose might need to treat but of course functional medicine really looks at people as individuals it takes the time to understand other data look at trends you know coach people on lifestyle and take measures of that to you know empower people to keep with those changes or you know to to make sure that they're consistent and you know, give them the tools they need. I think this is where I really, in particular, like functional medicine is that you get you get taught a set of tools, how to manage your health, mm. to try and keep you out of the doctor's office. Mm. And um, that in the normal system, of course, hasn't classically happened. You go to the doctor when you're sick and um, and then the doctor will prescribe medication, which of course, mostly just manages symptoms um and don't so, go to the root of the problem yeah mm. um and of course that's how the system has developed and i'm you know i don't want to pick on that system because it is by and large a great system for dealing with acute problems but from my perspective my opinion that um you know, functional medicine in, in regards to a model to how to prevent disease because it takes these different data measures um is a more effective system for certainly chronic disease prevention mm. and um potentially even chronic disease reversal or or management um mm. because of the the heavy lifestyle components mm. 
So thank you so much for coming here, Graham. Thanks for having me. Mm, it was an interesting hour and yeah. uh, looking forward to uh, invite you soon again. Yeah, thank you. You have listened to the Food Pharmacy Show with Lina Natchby and Mia Klase, joined by special guest Graham Jones. The podcast is edited by me, Sebastian Ring, and I've also composed all the music. For more Food Pharmacy content, visit foodpharmacyco.com and follow us on Instagram, food underscore pharmacy. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.